This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I'd like to like to get started now. Uh, this is this is a, a, a very very special event, most obviously because we have a, a, a very special uh, speaker, Amartya Sen, but but secondarily because this is a the inaugural event of the of the, the just-founded Center for the Study of Poverty and Inequality. Although I, I should hasten to add that we have a great many other uh, very important co-sponsors, including CEPR, CCSRE, the Departments of, of Philosophy and Sociology, the School of Law, uh, uh, the Stanford Center on Ethics, and the Ethics and Society Program. Now, when it comes to the task of, of, of introducing uh, Amartya Sen, you have to you have to concede that I have a, a kind of a daunting a daunting job. Uh, uh, all the more so when one recognizes that there is an effect this this as as, as you know an, an iron law of of of, of introducing uh, a law that says that that as the introducer I have to exaggerate the the accomplishments of the of the speaker by by some some constant maybe maybe 1.7 or something. <laughs> now that's all well and good. When, when the task before you is to, is to introduce that run-of-the-mill academic superstar. I can do that. But when you have to introduce someone whose accomplishments are stratospheric, then it looks simply ridiculous to exaggerate them by that requisite factor of 1.7. And, you know, I was thinking about this a bit more, this, the whole idea of, of having to abide by this iron law of exaggeration is, is, is where you have some factor of, of, of magnification of accomplishments of 1.7 or something. The whole idea is really, it's an inequality enhancing ritual, is it not? Uh, because we perceive far more, far more inequality of accomplishment than, than in fact is the case, at least under some inequality metrics. Uh, and, and so then I was thinking, well, Amartya wouldn't want me to do that. So, so I'm, I'm going to forgo, I'm going to throw up my arms, forgo the whole task of, of, of attempting the impossible of introducing Amartya and just turn the floor over to him and, and, and uh, uh, recognizing that all of you, of course, uh, already know very much about, about, about Amartya. So, so welcome. Well, that was a grand introduction, I must say. <laughs> I think you, by saying that you couldn't exaggerate, I think you exaggerated the qualities uh, implicitly so much that <laughs> I think the purpose was achieved and the iron law was met. <laughs> it's a... Um, oh, I should turn it off... Uh, I managed to get it on while I was being interviewed by someone called Charlie Rose. And I saw, saw liquid anger coming out of his eyes. And it had not yet been broadcast, I think. And I think there's a reason for that. So I should um, be more aware that one should take this off. Now, this is really a paper that is coming out in the Journal of Philosophy. It's been awaiting my revising it, which I haven't been yet done it, but it's supposed to go to press when it is done. And maybe after this, I'll go home and try to do that. Um, it's called, What Do We Want from a Theory of Justice? I think, is that what you've announced? Okay, good. Okay, I'm, uh, yeah, I just want to make sure that I'm in the right room. 
<laughs> so I will do something which economists never do, but since I'm wearing my hat as a dabbler in philosophy, I'll read the paper. <clears throat> I begin with the general Rawlsian position that the interpretation of justice must be linked with public reasoning. The focus has to be, in Rawls's word, on, I quote, a public framework of thought that provides an account and agreement in judgment among reasonable agents, unquote. Rawls outlines this demand in these words. We do not look at the social order from our situation, but take up a point of view that everyone can adopt on an equal footing. In this sense, we look at society and our place in it objectively. We share a common standpoint along with others and do not make our judgments from a personal slant, unquote. This diagnosis does, however, lead to two further issues. The first issue concerns the subject matter of public reasoning about justice. What are the questions to be answered? What are the matters to be resolved by a theory of justice? The second issue concerns the voice, uh, the voice says that should count in public reasoning. Should they all for, come from the members of a given society on ground that they're involved, or can they sensibly come from elsewhere as well? I began by drawing on Rawls's leadership on the basic connection between objectivity in politics and ethics and public reasoning. However, I have to argue for a rather different way of pursuing that connection, departing not only from the substantive content, but also from Rawls's diagnosis of the very requirements of a theory of justice, including the subject matter of public reasoning and the nature of public participation. The differences relate, in the, relate to the overarching question which has far-reaching implica uh, implication, and that's the title, What Do We Want from a Theory of Justice? In the Justice as Fairness, Rawls take the principal question to be, what is a just society? Indeed, in most theories of justice in contemporary political philosophy, that question is taken to be central. This leads to what can be called a transcendental approach to justice, which focuses on focuses on identifying perfectly just social arrangements. In contrast, what can be called a comparative approach, well illustrated, for example, by social choice theory, would concentrate instead on ranking alternative social arrangements, whether some arrangement is less just or more just than another, rather than focusing exclusively or at all on the identification of a fully just society. The transcendental and the comparative approaches are quite distinct. And as will be presently discussed, neither approach in general subsumes or entails the other. The transcendental approach to justice is not new. It can be traced at least to Thomas Hobbes. But recent contributions have done much to consolidate the reliance on that outlook. In his investigation of justice as fairness, Rawls explores in depth the nature of an entirely just society seen in the perspectives of contractarian fairness. Rawls's investigation begins with identifying the demands of fairness 
through exploring an imagined original position, quote-unquote, in which the members of the society are ignorant of their respective individual characteristics, including their own comprehensive preferences. The principles of justice that emerge in the original position are taken to be impartial because they are chosen by the persons involved under a veil of ignorance, without knowledge of their individual identities in the society with specific vested interests and particular priorities. Later on, the, on in this paper, which I, if I can get to it, I shall discuss some limitations of this understanding of the demands of fairness related to the issue whether the voices to be considered must all come from inside the given society, as the original position postulates. But the immediate point to note in the context of understanding the transcendental approach with, this, with which the first part of the paper is concerned is that the fairness exercise is aimed entirely at identifying appropriate principles for a fully just society and at isolating the institutional needs for the basic structure of, a such, of such a society. Indeed, that's where Rawls's analysis of um, justice begins, the basic structure. The working of these institutions, in turn, lead to further social decisions at later stages in Rawlsian system, for example, through appropriate legislation in what Rawls calls the legislative stage. The sequence moves forward step by step on firmly specified lines with elaborately characterized unfolding of completely just societal arraignments. Despite the standing and widespread use of the transcendental approach, the intellectual interest in it and the practical relevance of comparative questions about justice are hard to deny. Investigation of different ways of advancing justice in a society or in the world, or of re reducing manifest injustices that may exist, demands complete judgments, sorry, demands comparative judgment about justice, for which the identification of fully just social arrangement is neither necessary nor sufficient. To illustrate the contrasts involved, it may well turn out that in a comparative perspective, the introduction of social policies that eliminate widespread hunger or remove rampant illiteracy can be shown to yield an advancement of justice. But the implementation of such policies could still leave the societies involved far away from the transcendental requirements of a fully just society, since transcendence would have other demands regarding equal liberties, distributional equity, and so on. The grand partition between the just and the non-just, which is what a theory of transcendental justice yields, would leave the society on the non-just side even after the reform, despite what can be seen as a justice-enhancing change in a comparative perspective. Some non-transcendental articulation is clearly needed. To take another example, instituting a system of public health insurance in the United States that does not leave tens of millions of Americans without any guarantee of medical attention at all may be just ju judged to be an advancement of social justice. But such an institutional change would not turn the United States into a just society since there would remain a hundred other transgressions to remedy. 
a transcendental approach cannot on its own, that's clear, address questions about advancing justice and compare alternative proposals for having a more just society, short of proposing a radical jump in a perfect, to a perfectly just world. Indeed, the answers that a transcendental approach to justice gives, or can give, are quite distinct and distant from the type of concerns that engage people in discussions on justice and injustice in the world. For example, the inequities of hunger, illiteracy, torture, arbitrary incarceration, or medical or educational exclusion as particular social features that need remedying, <laughs> rather than looking only for the full cluster of perfectly just societal arrangements. The argument so far has been easy, indeed far too easy. Surely transcendental answer cannot be all we want from a theory of justice. But there might well be, and this is the matter to be investigated, some connection, some relationship between the transcendental and the comparative that could make the transcendental approach the right way of proceeding to comparative assessment. The formal remoteness of the transcendental approach, approach from functional judgments about justice does not in itself indicate that the transcendental approach cannot be the right approach. Thus, at least two further questions must be addressed. First, can it be the case that transcendence is sufficient for yielding much more than what its formal content suggests? In particular, can the answers to transcendental questions take us indirectly to comparative assessments of justice as well, in particular to comparison of, say, distances from transcendence at which any particular set of societal arrangement stands. This hypothesis is about the sufficiency of transcendental diagnosis for comparative judgments. Second, can it be the case that transcendental question, what is a just society, has to be answered as an essential requirement for a cogent and well-founded theory of comparative justice? which would otherwise be foundationally disjunctive and frail. This question is about the hypothesis of the necessity of transcendental diagnosis for comparative judgments. Both these issues must be addressed. Implicit beliefs in the sufficiency or the necessity of both of a transcendental approach for comparative assessment clearly have had a powerful role, and I emphasize implicit belief, uh, in the widespread acceptance that the transcendental approach is crucial for the entire theory of justice. Indeed, the whole of contemporary modern political philosophy has gone in this direction. So much so that even social choice theory, when it had begun this comparative, had not rested until you have found the transcendental point, whether we get to the maximum or the utilitarianism has been the figure of attention of the explosion of the literature that happened in the 70s and the early 80s on that subject. The, uh, the, on the other hand, I think it's worth emphasizing here that the social choice theory quintessentially is a comparative approach. If the transcendental thing comes, it comes as an afterthought, and to me it illustrates the hold of the transcendental approach 
that authors have not, and given many of the authors uh, actually have been connected. I mean, we have all been involved in it. Ken Arrow himself had been involved in it, the father of social choice theory. Uh, I've been involved in it. Peter Hammond has been involved in it. I think Patrick Soupy could be exempted from that charge. He has stood his ground firmly as a comparativist, grading principles, but not beyond that. But most of us have ended up producing these theorems. I don't think that compromises the comparative approach, but the question is whether that is at all a necessary part of that theory. Anyway, that's the thing to, to, to be discussed. I begin the, with the issue of sufficiency. Does a transcendental approach produce as a byproduct relational conclusions that are ready to be drawn out so that transcendence may end up giving a great deal more than its overt form of articulation. The difficulty here lies in the fact that there are different features involved in identifying distance, related among other distinctions to one, different fields of departure, two, varying dimensionalities of transgressions, and three, diverse way of weighing the separate infractions. The identification of transcendence does not yield any means of addressing these problems to arrive at a relational ranking of departures from transcendence. For example, in the context of the Rawlsian analysis of, it, the, of the de just society, departures may occur in many different spaces. They can include breaching of liberty, which furthermore can involve diverse violations of distinct kinds of liberties many of which figures in Rawls's capacious coverage of heterogeneous liberties and their comprehensive overall priorities. There can also be violations, again in possible, possibly disparate forms, of the demands of equity in the distribution of primary goods. There can be many different departures from the demands of the different principle, lexiographic maximin, which forms a part of Rawls's second principle. Similarly, diverse transgressions can occur in other transcendental theories of justice. For example, those that would replace the Rawlsian focus on primary goods in the different principle um, by concentrating respectively on capabilities or resources or opportunities or some other way of formulating the allocational distribu and distributional needs of transcendental justice. There's a debate here in which different people have taken different sides involving primary goods, capabilities, with, uh, in which I, I too have been involved, uh, resources in which Ronald Walkin and others have been involved, opportunities in which John Romer has been involved, and so on. But this is a different thing. I'm not addressing that question. These are, I'm not dismissing them as important. I think the criticism I'm trying to make is generic. It applies to them all. There are also disparate ways of assessing the extent of each such discrepancy and appraising the comparative remoteness of actual distribution from what the principle of full justice would demand. Further, we have to consider departures in procedural equity, such as the infringement of fair equality of public opportunities of facilities, which figures within the domain of Rawlsian demands of justice, in particular in the first part of the second principle. 
to weigh these procedural departures against infelicities of emergent patterns of interpersonal distributions, for example, distribution of primary goods or whatever, which also figure in the Rawlsian system, would require distinct specification, possibly in axiomatic terms, of the relative importance of significance of uh, significance or trade-offs, as they are sometimes called in the crude vocabulary of multidimensional assessment. But these, helpful as they would be, lie beyond the specific domain of the identification of transcendence and are indeed the basic ingredients of a comparative rather than a transcendental approach to justice. The characterization of spotless justice does not entail any delineation whatever of how diverse departures from spotlessness can be compared and ranked. The absence of such comparative implications is not, of course, an embarrassment for a transcendental theory of justice itself seen as a freestanding achievement. The relational silence is not, in any sense, an internal difficulty of a transcendental theory of justice. Indeed, some purely some pure transcendentalists would be utterly opposed even to flirting with gradings and comparative assessment and may quite plausibly shun relational conclusions altogether. They may point in particular to the understanding that the right social arrangement must not in any way be understood as a best social arrangement, which could open the door to what is sometimes seen as the intellectually mushy world of graded evaluation in terms of better and worse linked with, relationally super, uh, rel linked with the relationally superlative best. The absoluteness of the transcendental right against the relativities of better and the best may well have a powerfully reasoned standing of its own. I don't examine it here. But it does not, of course, help at all in comparative assessments of justice. Quite the contrary. To be sure, members of any polity can contemplate how a gigantic and totally comprehensive reorganization may be brought about, moving us at one go to the ideal of a fully just society. A no-nonsense transcendental theory can serve in this sense as something like a grand revolutionary's complete handbook. But that handbook would not be much invoked in the debates on justice in which we are constantly engaged, which focus on how to reduce the manifold injustices that characterize the world. Even if we think of transcendence not in the gradingless term of right social arrangement, but in the graded term of best social arrangement, the identification of the best does not in itself tell us much about the full grading, since many different full gradings may be consistent with having the same best, such as how to compare two non-best alternatives. The identification of the best does not specify a unique ranking with respect to which the best standing best stands at the pinnacle. Indeed, the same best may go with a great variety of different rankings with the same pinnacle. To consider an analogy, the fact that a person regards the Mona Lisa as the best picture in the world does not reveal how she would rank a Gauguin against a Van Gogh. 
the search for transcendental justice is an engaging exercise in itself. But irrespective of whether we think the transcendent in terms of a gradeless right or in the framework of a graded best, it does not tell us much about the comparative merits of different societal arrangements. Uh -huh. I now take up the second question concerning the hypothesis that the identification of the best is necessary, even if not sufficient, to rank any two alternatives in terms of an adequate theory of justice. In the usual sense of necessity, this would be a somewhat odd possibility. In the discipline of comparative judgment, in any field, relative assessment of two alternatives tend to tend in general to be a matter between them, without there being the necessity to beseech the help of a third, irrelevant, to quote a social choice theoretic term, alternative. Indeed, it is not at all obvious why in making the judgment that some societal arrangement X is better than an alternative arrangement Y, we have to invoke the identification that some quite different alternative Z is the best or the right social arrangement. In arguing for a Picasso over a Dali, we do not need to go steamed up about identifying the perfect picture in the world, which would be, which would be, um, which would be best, uh, and, and, and has no that issue has no particular relevance to ranking the Picasso and the Dali, uh, whether or not they are regarded as perfectly best. It might, however, be thought that the analogy with aesthetic is problematic, since a person might not, might not even have any idea of a perfect picture, in a way that the idea of a perfectly just society has appeared to be identifiable in transcendental theories of justice, like that of Kant or Rawls. I will argue later on that the existence of transcendence is actually not guaranteed, even in the field of justice. But I'm ready to proceed for the moment on the presumption that such an identification can somehow be made. However, despite this tentative acceptance, the existence of an identifiably inviolate or best alternative does not indicate that it's necessary or indeed useful to refer to it in judging the relative merits of two other alternatives. For example, we may indeed be willing to accept with great certainty that the Everest is the tallest mountain in the world, completely unbeatable in terms of stature by any other peak. But that, understa that understanding is neither needed nor particularly helpful in comparing the heights of, say, Kanchen Janga or, or Mont Blanc and Mont Blanc. There would be something very deeply odd in the general belief that a comparison of any two alternatives cannot be sensibly made without a prior identification of a supremely good alternative. Thus the hypothesis of necessity in the standard sense would also be hard to sustain. There is, however, a weaker form of the hypothesis of necessity which merely asserts that if comparative assessment can be systematically made then, the, then that discipline must also be able to identify the very best. I should read it again, perhaps. A weaker form of hypothesis that asserts that if, if comparative assessment can be systematically made, then that 
discipline of comparative assessment must also be able to identify the very best. The claim in this case would be not so much that two alternatives cannot be compared in terms of justice without first knowing what the best or the perfect alternative is, but that the comparative ranking of the different alternatives must inter alia also be able to identify the answer to the transcendental question regarding the perfectly just society. Or to put it another way, if the transcendental question cannot be answered, then nor can be the comparative. Thus understanding, this understanding of necessity would not vindicate the need to go via transcendental approach to comparative assessment, but it would be at least it would at least give transcendental identification a necessary presence in the theory of justice. We have to examine this somewhat weaker claim of necessity as well. Gosh, I am warm. I'm going to take this off. with a sequence of pairwise comparisons, invariably lead us to the very best. That presumption has some appeal, since the superlatives might indeed appear to be the natural endpoint of a robust comparative. But this conclusion would in general be a non sequitur. In fact, it's only with a well-ordered ranking, for example, a complete and transitive ordering over a finite set, that we can be sure that the set of pairwise comparisons must also identify a best alternative. We must therefore ask how complete should the assessment be for it to be a systematic discipline. In the quote-unquote totalist approach that characterized the standard theories of justice, including Rawls's, incompleteness tends to appear as a failure, or at least a sign of the unfinished nature of the business, business of making comparison of justice. Indeed, the survival of incompleteness is sometimes seen as a, defeatist, as a defect of a theory of justice, which calls into question the positive assertions that such a theory makes. In fact, however, a theory of justice that makes systematic room for incompleteness allows one to arrive at possibly quite strong judgments. For example, about the injustice of continuing famines in a world of prosperity and plenty, or of persistently grotesque subjugation of women, and so on, without having to find highly differentiated assessment of every political and social arrangement in comparison with every other arrangement. For example, addressing such question as, is the top income tax rate of 45% more just or less just than a top rate of 46%. I've discussed elsewhere why a systematic and disciplined theory of normative evaluation, including assessment of social justice, need not take this totalist form. This is just in case people are interested in a paper also in Journal of Philosophy, September 2000, called Consequential Evaluation and Practical Reason, uh, September 2000. Incompleteness may be of the lasting kind for several different reasons, including unbridgeable gaps of information and judgmental unresolvability involving disparate considerations that cannot be entirely eliminated, even with full information. 
For example, it may be hard to resolve the overall balance of the comparative claims of equity considerations that lie behind Rawlsian lexicographic maximin compared with, say, some ranking in a gross and equity-adjusted form. Gross form would be utilitarian. Equity-adjusted form would be something like adding concave transforms of utilities, as Jim Merlis does in his theory of optimum taxes. And yet, despite such durable ambiguity, we may still be able to agree readily that there is a clear failure of social justice involved which can be remedied in the persistence of endemic hunger or exclusion from medical access, which calls for remedying for the advancement of justice even after taking note of the costs involved. Similarly, we may acknowledge the possibility that liberties of different persons may, to some extent, conflict with each other, so that any fine-tuning of the demands of equal liberty may be hard to work out. And yet, strongly agree, along with it, we may also strongly agree that arbitrary incarceration of accused people without access to court procedures would be an unjust violation of liberty that calls for an urgent rectification that can be made. There's a further consideration that may powerfully work in the direction of making political room for incompleteness of judgments about social justice, even if, even if it were the case that every person has a complete ordering over the possible uh, societal arraignments. Since the theory of justice invokes, in, involves, invokes agreement between different parties, for example, in the original position in the Rawlsian framework, incompleteness can arise from the possibility that different persons may continue to have some differences consistently with agreeing on a lot of the comparative judgments. Even after vested interests and personal priorities have been somehow taken out of the consideration through some devices such as the veil of ignorance, there may remain possibly conflicting views on social priorities, for example, in weighing the claims of need over entitlement um, in the form, entitlement to the fruits of one's own labor. Conflicts of distributive principles that are hard to eradicate can be illustrated with a simple example. It's an example which I've discussed elsewhere as well. I can't remember where, though. The example is concerned, and I, actually I used it, I think, in a class in Harvard, but I might have used it elsewhere. The example is concerned with the problem of deciding which of, the three, chil of, which of three children who are quarreling over a flute should have the flute. Child A is the only one of the three who knows how to play the flute. The other two don't deny this. They accept that he is the only one who can play it. They also agree that child B is the only one without any toys of his own. The other two concede that they are much richer and well supplied with engaging amenities. And child C, they also all three agree, has worked hard to make the flute himself all on his own, and the others confirm this. Theorists of different persuasions, utilitarian, egalitarian, or libertarian, may believe that a just resolution can be readily spotted here, 
though alas they would respectively see totally different resolutions as being exactly right. The main point to note in the present context, by the way, this was actually a subject matter of my first paper on Rawls's theory of justice, which came out in mine in early 60s, called Games, Justice and General Will, uh, which was originally a paper in, in to the Apostle, but then eventually published in mine jointly with one of my fellow members of that, namely Gary Runciman. Uh, it was a critique saying, I couldn't understand how in the original position there will be an agreement on one some set of principles. Certainly Rawls himself gives no reason as to how that would emerge. He simply asserts that. The main point to note in the present context is that the different resolutions all have serious argument in support of them. And we may not be able to identify exactly one of the alternative arguments as being the only one to invoke Thomas Scanlon's criteria that, I quote, could be justified to others on grounds that they, if appropriately motivated, could not reasonably reject, which is the criteria. I think one of, one of these three might appeal to any of us very strongly, but others to others, and it would be very hard to say that there's, there's no way that somebody could justify. Um, uh, there is a principle which others could not reasonably reject from a perspective which could be seen as having sense of its own. Even when each of these parties involved has his or her own complete specification of justice, the intersection between rankings, that is the shared beliefs of the different parties, can yield a partial ranking if the judgment are not all congruent. The acceptability of evaluative incompleteness is indeed a central subject in social choice in general, and it is relevant to theories of justice as well, even though Rawlsian and other theories firmly assert, and it is an assertion rather than something that's established in, a, in any clear way, that a full, full agreement will definitely emerge in the original position and in other such formats. Thus, for reasons both of incomplete individual evaluations and, uh, and incomplete congruence of individual assessment, incompleteness may be a hardy feature of judgment of social justice. This can be problematic for the identification of a perfectly just society and make transcendental conclusions difficult to derive. And yet such incompleteness would not prevent making comparative judgments of justice in a great many cases where there might be fair agreement on particular pairwise rankings about how to enhance justice and reduce injustice. A partial ordering can be very useful without being able to lead to any transcendental identification of a fully just society. In a symposium that was published, is that Sintis come out from here, Stanford still, or not? I don't know. In a Sintis, the journal called that, in, the, in, a, in a volume in memory of, uh, in, in, in celebration of Isaac Selbing published here, yeah. Isaac Levi, there's a debate on that. Isaac goes part of the way with me, but uh, wants me to part company at some stage. So I think, uh, no, complains that I part company at some stage, but I won't go into it. That came out last year, I think. Well, it came out 2004. That the hiatus between the relational approach and the transcendental approach to justice is complete. The question, what is a just society, is not, I have argued, a good starting point for a useful theory of justice. To that I have added 
giving some reasoning, the further conclusion that it may not be a plausible endpoint either. The systematic theory of comparative justice does not need, nor does it necessarily yield, an answer to the question, what is a just society? I turn now to a different but related feature of transcendental approaches to justice, in particular the extremely demanding institutional requirements that tend to go with the pursuit of spotless justice. The history of the paper is that Tom Nagel and I were doing joint seminar arranged by Okel Belgami in Colombia, and Tom gave his paper, which came out later in Philosophy and Public Affairs in, 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 in two years ago, arguing why there could not be such a thing as a global justice, mainly on grounds that you could not have a perfect justice without those institutions. And in the world, as we see it, there's no way of having these institutions. So you got completely trapped in the requirement of transcendence, I thought. Um, if such spotless justice were the only focus of attention in a theory of justice, then the institutional preconditions would form a kind of entry barrier leading to an abstinence from applying justice theory in situations in which those exacting institutional demands cannot be met. The institutional preconditions would be hard to meet in dealing with, say, problems of global justice, or for that matter, with issues of national justice, when institutional feasibilities are significantly limited. The characterization of a fully just society requires a plethora of institutions which the world does not have and mostly cannot readily establish. The claim that we need a sovereign state to apply the principle of justice was well articulated by Thomas Hobbes. And it is that proposition is substantially connected with the elaborate institutional demands of a transcendental understanding of justice. And Nagel's paper, The Problem of Global Justice, where he argues that there isn't such a thing, and follows roles in applying things other than justice, giving up the most powerful ethical concept in the, in, 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 in the world. In dealing with global justice, the justice element is dropped and is put in the basket, essentially, of humanitarianism. In the Rawlsian approach, too, the application of a theory of justice requires an extensive cluster of institutions that determine the basic structure of a fully just society with which the theory of justice Jack, Rawls, Jack Rawls's book begins. Not surprisingly, Rawls, says, Rawls basically abandons his own principles of justice when it comes to the assessment on, of how to go about thinking about global problems. In a later contribution, The Laws of People, Rawls invokes a second original position with a fair negotiation involving representatives of different polities or different peoples, as Rawls calls them, who serve as parties under a second veil of ignorance. However, Rawls does not try to derive principles of justice that might emanate from the second original position and concentrates instead on certain general principles of humanitarian conduct, including reasonable help to be given to decent or not necessarily just societies. The Rawlsian vehicle that would take us rapidly forward in full pursuit of justice remained stalled and stationary in the wintry morning of global injustice. With rather limited institutional possibilities in the foreseeable future, the challenge of making the world less just remains entirely unaddressed. 
It's not, however, at all clear why we should be reduced to silence so far as theories of justice are concerned, merely because of the restrained reach of institutional possibilities which would make a transcendental justice possible. And that, of course, itself raises questions about how justice can nevertheless be advanced without necessarily uh, solving the transcendental question. Indeed, that can be a fruitful part, the comparative approach, of the subject matter of a deliberate framework of public reasoning, a public framework thought which Rawls has rightly taught us to value and use, should not become wholly inoperative merely because some demanding institutional conditions for a perfectly spotless just society has turned out to be infeasible. There is thus a real tension between making good use of public reasoning and also general arguments in that direction, and remaining silent whenever some exacting institutional conditions cannot be entirely fulfilled, a conclusion that emerged from the special transcendental form of Raw that Rawls gives to his theory of justice. The importance of public reasoning for dealing with global problems of justice is a subject of importance on, on its own. And that, to that I turn, so it's the second question that I'm moving to now. I'll give up as soon as my 50-minute quota is finished. However, it must be acknowledged that even though Rawls was a visionary leader of thought on the importance of public reasoning, he had considerable skepticism about the use of public reasoning at the global level. It's important to separate out two possible grumbles, sorry, grounds, grounds for Rawls' reluctance. One issue, that was rather revealing to say grumble. <laughs> One issue, which has already been mentioned, is the inapplicability of the exacting framework of transcendental justice at the global level because of institutional limitations. A second possible reason for Rawls' reluctance is his insistence on linking public reasoning with the contractarian format of the original position. This involves a devised deliberative exercise that would be hard to apply beyond the limits of a particular society or a particular people, as Rawls defined the collectivity in his later work. Rawls' statement about the need for a common standpoint, which was quoted earlier from a theory of justice at the beginning of this paper, was immediately followed by the invoking of this particular conceptual device. I quote from Rawls again, and from theory of justice again. Thus, our moral principles and convictions are objective to the extent that they have been arrived at and tested by assuming this general standpoint or by assessing the arguments for them by the restrictions expressed by the conception of the original position. So every, all the eggs are put on that one basket, even the definition of fairness. The deliberation thus takes the form of fair negotiation, in which the fairness of the reasoned negotiation is grounded on the demand that the reasoning occurs under a specially conceived veil of ignorance. But the participants, participants in the deliberation are exactly the parties to the social contract for the society in question. A person's voice counts because he or she is directly involved in the social contract, which will regulate the institution of the society of which he is a member. I'm going to have some water.
in contrast with this negotiational justification of voice, there's a different approach to impartiality, which brings in different voices, possibly even from a distance, to use Adam Smith's phrase, precisely because these voices illuminate public decisions and help to make them impartial. In the terminology of Klonsic resolution, this is more like fair arbitration rather than fair negotiation. The arbit arbitrators need not themselves be parties to the dispute. I have argued elsewhere, and this is in the, another Journal of Philosophy paper, I'm afraid, that's in Journal of Philosophy September 2002, called Open and Closed Impartiality. Actually, these three form a kind of whole, which will then eventually go into my book on theory of justice. Um, I've argued there that the interpretation of fairness and impartiality through an understanding of fair arbitration is a serious rival to the root of fair negotiation, which is the exclusive direction in which contractarian features of Rawlsian transcendental approach, that is justice as fairness, proceeds because of the way original position is definitionally built into the requirement of impartiality. The approach of fair arbitration is well ex exemplified by Adam Smith's invoking of the perception of impartial spectators. The impartial spectators are imagined observers who need not be members of the society and their impartiality does not come, as in the Rawlsian system, exclusively, even primarily, through thought experiment of a veil of ignorance about the personal circumstances of individual members of a given society. Rather, the thought experiment by members of society in the Smithian system of fairness invokes the judgment of disinterested observers who are not themselves parties to the social decisions that are to be taken. In itself, this may not seem like a big difference, since both are merely thought experiments that must be undertaken within the respective format by the people in the actual society. Also, there is nothing to prevent the imagined fair arbitrators from undertaking the exercise of placing themselves in the position of the parties involved under a devised veil of ignorance so that fair arbitration can make good use of the insights that may come from fair negotiation. However, there are two sources of substantial difference between the Smithian and the Rawlsian procedures. First, the contractarian approach standardly proceeds towards identifying the demands of transcendence, the principal inquiry in the original position, whereas Smith's impartial spectators are typically invoked in a somewhat piecemeal way to throw light on specific issues of advancement or retardation of justice, like those that he was involved in, or Condorcet at his time was involved in, like abolition of slavery or, or, or having uh, a removal of feudal barriers to trade. All these would not have made the society a perfectly just society, but they figured big, in a big way in a comparative approach. A second difference arises from the fact that the impartial observers may be imagined as coming from far as well as near, with questions being asked about how the decisional problems would look to those who may have had a different social and institutional experience, a question of decisive importance to Smith. There is another technical problem which I am not going to discuss, 
I believe the original position story is actually has an internal contradiction. This I presented in the Journal of Philosophy. I'll give you the sketch of an argument, but I don't have time to discuss it fully. It's basically this. If you want to involve everyone who's going to be involved uh, in the in actual society and nobody else, exact, all of them and exactly them, then you have some difficulty in taking up questions, explicitly, say, of population problem, because every change in decision-making produces a different cluster of population, even a number of population. Now, you can easily figure out that you would be either making a type 1 or a type 2 error in general if the discussion can allow different possibilities to be considered by a group, but the group themselves would be variable depending on what decisions are taken. That's the nature of the problem. And since, as we know from Derek Parfit and many others, every economic and social policy change has a population implication, that really means that none of the economic and social problems could be discussed. That's a kind of tension there, and I leave that question out, but I'd be happy to come back if at discussion time somebody wants to get me to talk about that. While the role, so I continue on the other issues, while the roles in original position concentrate on fair negotiation among citizens of a given society, a model of fair arbitration can have much more versatility in being able to include people who are not subjects of a given state. The substantive difference is made by the fact that the perspective that the impartial spectators bring to fair arbitration are not confined only to the local observers. This makes two types of difference. First, the arbitration approach allows the possibility of taking note of some of the, some of the broader concerns, including distributive concerns um, that global just, uh, about global justice that have led in recent years to attempt to consider a cosmopolitan version of the original position so that the interest of people in other countries, which may be influenced by policies of this country, whether it be India or Iraq, um, you know, their lives may be affected by what happened here to say they haven't got a voice here it's not quite obvious how that's going to proceed uh, in terms of the other criteria that everyone affected must somehow come in. I should emphasize, and again I skipped that discussion, that the transcendental version of the Rawlsian picture, which, uh, say, Thomas Pogge gives, is not what I'm talking about. I'm, that's still a contractarian approach and suffers from other things, including the inclusionary incoherence, which I referred to about who to be included. Second, the approach of the impartial spectator can bring in, inter alia, distant perspectives that are detached not only from the particular vested interests of individual citizens, but also from any parochialism of local beliefs that may be generally shared by all members of a given polity or community. One of the possible advantages of the route of fair arbitration is thus the greater versatility that the later, latter has, which can incorporate a systematic procedural challenge to the distortion of parochial convictions. The avoidance of parochialism was in fact one of the principal reasons for Smith's insistence that the impartial spectator must inter alia represent perspectives from, as Smith put it, a certain distance, quote-unquote. Smith put the point thus, I quote, we can do this in no other way than by endeavoring to view them with the eyes of other people, or other, as other people are likely to view them. 
in a chapter on the theory of moral, in the theory of moral sentiments, um, rather revealingly called on the influence of custom and fashion upon the sentiments of moral approbation and disapprobation, unquote, that was the title of the chapter, Smith argued that, I quote, the different situations of different ages and countries are apt to give different characters to the generality of those who live in them and their sentiments concerning the particular degree of each quality that is either blamable or praiseworthy, vary according to the degree which is usual in their country and in those their own time, unquote. One of Smith's illustrations of such parochial values was the tendency of all political commentators in ancient Greece, including sophisticated Athenians, to regard infanticide as perfectly acceptable social behavior. Even Plato and Aristotle did not depart from expressing approval. Smith noted of this extraordinary practice, which, again quoting Smith, uninterrupted custom had by that time thoroughly authorized in ancient Greece. Unquote. The Rawlsian demand, by the way, one of the interesting points to know, this is just an aside, is that this is the kind of point which is usually made by taking backwards societies, you know, stoning adulterous women. Uh, one of the um, peculiar things about Smith is he always picks the very highest brow people, in this case Athenians, Aristotle, and Plato, to indicate the limitation of this thinking. Um, Someday, if I have time, I'll talk about Smith's discussion of the nutritional value of potato, which also shows this, this inclination, but that will take about two or three minutes. If I have time, I'll come back to it. It's an interesting story, actually. The Rawlsian device of losing information about personal identities in a given society, which does much to eliminate the influence of individual vested interests, does nothing in any systematic, procedural way in avoiding prejudices that are broadly shared by all in a given society. As it happens, the local parochialism of the contractarian approach is in fact reinforced by Rawls's insistence that the transcendental exercise in the original position should concentrate on their basic structure, I quote, the basic structure of a closed society, that is, we are to regard it as self-contained and has, having no relation with other societies, unquote. Adam Smith's argument that we must inter alia view our sentiment from a certain distance from us is motivated by the need to ask the question whether some appearance of justice is socially biased through the impact of entrenched tradition and local custom in a particular region. Smith's actual example of infanticide remains distressingly relevant in some societies even today, though no, no longer in Greece. But there are also many other practices for which justice being done, seen to be done, may be usefully be invoked, as Smith put it, the, by invoking the, quote-unquote, the eyes of the rest of mankind. Well, an American audience may find it easy to believe that distant perspective may be usefully brought in in the case of the backward societies such as Sudan or Afghanistan, in which, for example, honor killings occur, there may be no corresponding recognition of the need to do this for more advanced countries like the United States itself. However, well-established practices that receive widespread support within the border might be seen as unacceptable to people in many other countries, 
spread across the world from Europe to Japan. For example, plentiful use of capital punishment with, with or without being accompanied by public jubilation may need to be addressed not only by asking whether they appear cruel and unusual within the local culture, but also, I quote, the, in the eyes of the rest of mankind, unquote, which Smith thought must be invoked to understand whether, I quote, a punishment appears equi equitable, unquote. The relevance of distant perspective has clear relevance in some current debates in the United States. For example, that in the Supreme Court not long ago on the appropriateness of using capital punishment for crimes committed in juvenile years. The demands of justice being seen to be done, even in a country like the USA, cannot, be enti cannot entirely neglect the understanding that may be generated by how the problem is assessed in other countries in the world. The majority judgment of the court, which actually decided that it could not be um, that, uh, that, um, uh, that it would be unjust to, to execute someone for crime committed in the minor year, uh, and in the context invoked uh, arguments presented, particularly in Europe, um, that appeared to one of the minority uh, signatories, Justice uh, uh, Scalia, I'm not get the pronunciation, is it Scalia or Scalia? Scalia, Scalia. It appeared to him as, as being... Um, uh, as deferring to like-minded foreigners. Um, but the, what was being done by the majority report by, Thomas, uh, by Bayer and others is the cogency of invoking impartial spectators from a certain distance, to use Smith's phrase, because it is a direct bearing in interpreting the kind of consideration that can be internalized in a broader understanding of the demand that justice can be seen to be done. Justice Baer told me that he told one of his colleagues, he didn't tell me which, about some, some argument presented in the Indian Supreme Court, and his colleague told him that um, you are now scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> Distant voices, too, uh, are of course subject to the discipline of critical scrutiny themselves, including the invoking of impartial spectators from far as well as near. The discipline of fair arbitration can thus be seen to be a globally interactive exercise. General acceptability, which must be distinguished from pre-existing ubiquitous as acceptance, is an important issue in any social evaluation. And I've tried to discuss elsewhere why open and interactive public reasoning is centrally important for understanding the claims that human rights make, despite differences in manifest practices between countries and also, of course, within each country. I think I presented the paper here in Stanford before it came out in Slogos in Public Affairs. Now, I think this is where I'm going to stop because I've just done my 50 minutes. And... Um, so basically, I've argued that the what is a just society is a very problematic way of doing theory of justice. It's not a good starting point, not a good end point. It's not sufficient nor necessary for the really interesting questions in theory of justice. To that, I've added that the original position as a device is also very limited. So despite my being 
very influenced by Rawls in terms of public reasoning. I think as far as the substantive structure of his theory is concerned, I fear, I feel unable to agree, go along with either his idea of fairness or his ideas of justice, and I've tried to outline why that is the case. There were a few other things I discussed in the paper, but they can, they can be done in some other occasion. You can read the paper when it comes out. Thank you. It's open for comments, questions, doubts. Pat. Pardon? Pat, you're being invited to stand up. <laughs> Well, comparative reports need not be complete, of course. You can make some. No, no, I want to stress another point. It seems to me yeah. the thing to add uh, is often constraints. Yeah. Not maximization, but constraints. So a good example would be a constraint of poverty is to agree you shouldn't have below a certain level. Mm -hmm. That doesn't maximize, uh, doesn't create a just society or maximize, but it does put a constraint underneath things. No, I agree. That often is the kind of thing we want to negotiate. Yeah. And so I introduce a third way of looking at it. Yeah. I yeah, you know, this is something we which may, may we may discuss you and I sometime further. Because I have some problem with it because the constrained way of looking at it, as you know, it appeals to many and for many years Bob Nozick and I used to teach a class together, ten years actually. And he is very very drawn not just to his libertarian theory, but to a contract based, uh, to, to the constraint-based perspective. My difficulty is that if you take the view that satisfying the constraint would invariably make it a better situation, that would of course be an example of a comparative. But if it would not, then it's not obvious to me that that constraint should be rightly imposed. I mean, I'm actually being a kind of dyed-in-the-wool comparativist as a social choice theorist might wish to do. On the other hand, you may have to then give an argument that even though imposing that may not make a situation better, for some reason there exists an argument why we should do it. Now, if my hypothesis would be, but this is to be examined, chatting with you, uh, and this is, can get on to quite a technical argument, that as to whether it would be ultimately reducible to a comparative question or whether it would have a standing of its own if it's not thus reducible. That, that's where the debate is, but I, I recognize the territory you're emphasizing. Good. Yeah. Uh, could you just explain some 
Well, uh, no, I, I, well, you're, you're looking at the sufficiency claim, not the necessity claim here. Yeah. No, well, you have just gone into it. That was a sufficiency claim. Yeah, so you are now trying to give a counterexample to sufficiency. You haven't given an argument on necessity. No, okay. No, no, fine. Uh, but the the... the Argument is, uh, the, the difficulties are this, you know, first of all, it's not a claim that, that uh, the transcendental theory would not give you any comparative at all, though I believe they will give very few. Uh, if you take the kind that you're dealing with, first of all, I, I think it's very difficult to think even the first principle being satisfied. You know, this idea, the, like the distinction people often make, saying the, the first generation of rights are very easy as a, uh, Maurice Cranton put it, the state need do nothing and then it would be fulfilled. But if for doing the other things, the social things, the second generation, right, the state has to get going and that may not be possible in a poor country and so on. But it isn't, you know, especially in a post-9-11 world to think that you can protect everybody's liberty in a society such that these violations do not occur. It's very hard to imagine, actually, and it's not the case either that the state does not need to do anything in fact, it's doing constantly a great many things right now, being debated in, in, in the Senate as to whether you can, you know, snoop on people. Why are you doing it? I mean, these are concerned not with the second principle. They're concerned basically with the first, with the liberties. That is, that people could be safe with their life and liberty. In order to do that, you might have to snoop into people's telephone conversations. Now, there you are involved in a debate within the first principle itself, in the United States itself. So I think this idea, the hypothetical picture, I mean, I, I know it could exist in principle. I don't think you've got one here. That is, the first principle is completely satisfied, but the second yet not. And given the priority, you say, well, we've got halfway down there. I don't think that in practice is going to be a great deal of help. But even if it did, it would not lead to any disputation of anything that I have said. It's just that this is not a good way of going to the comparative because a lot of the debates would not be about that. But as a matter of fact, I don't think it's even the case that the first principle satisfaction is actually met in any society that I can think of. Yeah. I don't think you need a finite number of alternatives necessarily. I don't think anything turns on finiteness. Actually, going from comparative to transcendent, finiteness make a diff may difficulty because there might be an ordering but not a well-ordered infinite set. But if you're con not concerned with transcendence, it's not 
raising any particular difficulty for the comparative of such. That's an additional difficulty for transcendence, as such we haven't even mentioned. But it, insofar as it is a problem, it's a problem of transcendence, not of comparison. Ken. Supreme Court judgment you're looking at? Judgment where, for example, the uh, basic liberties which are guaranteed by the 14th Amendment are explicitly said to be those that were, have been held to be important in this society. And a lot of arguments were whether certain things, uh, this had to do with this, had to do with the rights of children and parents, but, uh, were b- built uh, into the, were, were uh, now, part of that, of course, is the question of what did the authors mean? presumably meant something to which has to be interpreted in light of what was commonly understood. Although even there they tend to say, well, it got, it may, things may have changed, what's considered important may have changed. But there's a, so for example, we take a, a, a quoting Europe, uh, uh, European views, maybe they aren't American views. And there's an American concept of justice, or, or a European concept of justice, which is informed by, whose, me, whose meaning is informed by uh, um, by observing how people behave and how they have behaved and how they have thought. Uh, now, most concepts of justice, whether the ones I try to have here or, or, or others, tend to say there is a just society w- whose implementation may indeed depend on circumstances, uh, the opportunities there. But um, somehow the concept of justice is invariant under. Uh, in, in some fundamental sense, invariant under cultural or historical situations. And um, I must say, I've always thought that myself, but I need to work. Uh, and uh, uh, that uh, the, the implementation, so therefore, for example, quoting foreign doctrines. Is a mistake. Right. Yeah. And even in our dealings yeah. with other countries, yeah. possibly take an asymmetric. Yeah, I think the position that Smith is taking there on the on his particularly uh, lectures on his uh, lectures on jurisprudence is that it's a subject for the public debate to be had. Not that there will be necessary agreement, but until you have had this discussion, bringing in why is it that in other countries something else is done, then you, can't, you don't even know whether you agree or not. A lot of the revisions that take place take place by raising the question. And to be fair to the majority report, majority judgment on the particular case I refer to, that's all they were saying, that these are questions that Europeans have taken seriously and Americans too. They're not quoting, as Scalia thought they were doing, to just invoke the agreement that exists already in Europe. They thought you have to have a debate. This is, in a sense, a further of what I was calling the Rawlsian approach of public reasoning. It is to extend the public reasoning much more on, at a global level. That's, that was what is the case. And, you know, I think the, there may be no invariant full ordering, but there could be still a lot of agreement on it, and if you're looking for an 
in complete ordering, you might be able to get the intersection, the standard way that we do. So it, one has to see what would be the impact of bringing in such consideration, A, through revision of judgment yourself. Rawls himself discusses, not in the context of fairness, but when he's talking about informed, reflective equilibrium, he brings in these considerations, excepting he makes no room for them in his procedure of fairness. And so in some ways, I think Rawlsian own discussion is much richer than his procedure of justice as fairness is. And my critique is primarily about procedure uh, about that. And indeed, there's the Smithian concerns uh, have little room, uh, have, do have a substantial but uh, you know, limited room in Rawlsian discussion in the context of reflective equilibrium. Uh, and, and, and that's quite important. And then in the hands of some followers of Rawls, like Tim Scanlon, it had a somewhat bigger room than that. So there's a whole lot of these things to look at. But I think procedurally, that just says their point of view is not relevant. That is being left out. I mean, Rawls is constructing, when the procedure is concerned, that this has to be a kind of self-contained society. People don't speak to each other across the borders because, you know, the other ways would be, as he says, he goes on to say in the passage, the one after quoted, saying, we know that people do chat with each other outside, but it's for the sake of the purity of the theory that I'm imposing. So it seems to me that what could be a source of some importance is being lost in that. And it's a point that was made a long time ago, not just by Smith, but also by David Hume, about how uh, distant perspectives make us, you know, I think he called the limits of justice ever grow wider on the basis of existence of other people with their, their perspective and so on. That's really, that's the issue, is the limit, the content of the, the, of, uh, of, of, of the public debate that takes place here. I can see there are several hands, okay, that and that, yeah. Pardon, if I could what? No, I'm, I'm, there's a word that I'm missing. Elaborate. Uh, can I elaborate? Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think the cultural differences that could be quite substantial. Consider the following conversation taking place in an Indian city called Agra, 1590s. Uh, the emperor who is based in Agra is called Akbar. Uh, he has just finished promulgating rules with minority rights that should be guaranteed and everyone's right to religion to be accepted. And he has just finished his first round, of which there will be several, of discussions between people from different backgrounds, Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Jews, Jains, Parsis, and even atheists. Abul Fazl is writing about it in Akbar Nama, 1590s. That's exactly the same time when Giordano Bruno is being burnt at the stake in Rome for apostasy. And I, I imagine, I ask you to imagine the following discussion in Agra. Would the Romans ever reach a situation where they will find it possible to tolerate other points of view without burning them. <laughs> now, I think that pessimism would have been unjustified. I think a lot of the pessimism that exists today is similarly unjustified. You know, I think there's a, my, the, I have a recent book which has just come out, 
Dr. Kevin going around crying horse since, since the morning, giving interviews on radios. Uh, you know, I thought that I was going to actually flood all the roads now with, uh, with those interviews. Um, it, it, that goes into that question quite extensively. I think the cultural generalizations have been immensely overdrawn. There's, of course, an, even an anthropological version whereby it's said that we cannot even talk to each other, cannot even understand each other. There, there is a comprehensive pessimism about that. And the evidence seems to turn on, I'm actually ridiculing, in fact, I'm, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but I don't intend to, just to make my point, that, that Captain Cook arrived in some island. He didn't know the native customs. And when they were approaching him, he pulled his revolver and the natives killed him. Now, this is supposed to illustrate that conversation between cultures could not take place. Now, oddly enough, one thing that did not take place was any conversation at all. <laughs> he just pulled his revolver. I think if I saw this Englishman getting off his ship and if I had been living in an island and given the history of imperialists, I think I would take a pretty dim view of a guy who pulls out his revolver on the sight of sea on, on, my, on seeing me. So I think this idea to build a comprehensive conversational pessimism based on the fact that we may not be able to follow the symbolisms instantly without some chatting with people, it seems to me to be, again, a premature uh, pessimism of a kind that's hard to justify. So I'm trying to question that. But since I don't have much time to discuss it now, if you, and I don't suggest you buy the book, but you can borrow it from the library, which is... <laughs> Quite a cost-effective way of doing it. It's called Inequality, uh, no, Identity and Violence. And the subtitle is more particularly concerned with it. It's called The Illusion of Destiny. Now, there was somebody on that side. Yes, were you going to ask a question? It is what? It's height. Height. Right. Yeah, but uh, do we need to know that Everest is the tallest mountain to know that fact? I mean, if somebody asks the question, which is the higher mountain, is it Karakoram or Kanchanjunga, well, then I think it seems to me that we have already settled the issue that we are comparing heights. Okay, is that, that's not an argument. That, that's your argument, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Why is that? Somehow that you need a perfectly just society in order to know the dimension in which it is the best. Where are we getting them 
we're getting, you know, I sense if I'm trying to judge, I come back to the analogy actually I did give, if I'm com trying to compare whether a Picasso is better than a Dali, a particular Picasso is better than a particular Dali, I don't think I'm helped by being, think, you know, if somebody said, can you, which one is better? I said, oh gosh, I'm thinking about it. Very complicated question. And somebody said, no, let me give you a hint. The best picture in the world in Mona Lisa. He said, well, now, is it clear to you? And I don't think it would be any clearer to me than it was earlier to hear that. So I think the claim that transcendence is somehow establishes the dimensionality which cannot be established otherwise is, is a very implausible claim to me. And, um, Barbara, you may be right, but there, there, there's some hidden argument which I haven't yet seen. to say that, my God, that smile. He said, oh, God, you look for the smile in Dali. And he said, no, there's no smile. No, it doesn't require any of that. I think it's not a standardly good way of doing it. Whether there exists a situation, you know, I think the onus is on the transcendentalist to say, okay, these points may hold, but it's a very useful way of going about it. Here, so here's some demonstration that is useful. If such an argument is presented, I'm very willing to consider it. I have a pretty open mind on that. It wouldn't affect the general claim that it's... it's, it's that at least what the argument that exists that I've been able to read by transcendentalists, which includes all kinds of great people. It includes Rawls, it includes Dworkin, it includes a lot of others who have written on that. I haven't seen any argument of the kind that, and that's why I was plant, uh, suggesting, Barbara, that it's your argument here, and that wasn't meant to disrespect for you, but a very respectful point to make, that if that argument is sustainable, then it would be a new feature which I haven't seen in Rawls' own work. And um, if such a theory was given, then I wouldn't be ready to consider it. But it does seem to me that the onus is on the transcendentalist to say, why to ask a question which possibly doesn't admit of an answer at all? Because I, I really do think that we won't be able to resolve, even in the original position, some of the real claims on the dispute between, you know, between the egalitarian perspective, the utilitarian maximizing perspective, the kind of right to whatever it is that uh, Jerry Cohen calls the self-ownership perspective and so on, because these are quite substantial demands on our attention. And to end up in a situation when none other than one counts is itself very difficult, and then you say all of them count, then you are immediately involved in a waiting problem, and that's not part of that theory yet. So I think, in a sense, it, it may well turn out, let's do a compromise, it may well turn out that there is some argument here which would make sure that the transcendental is a very useful way of going about it, but I would still like to see what that argument is. 
Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, I have a question. Um, what do you think would be a fair way to train the Christian um, immigration family? Because um, in the Raj instance, like um, he doesn't really mention immigration. So, um, how would you think that if they issues um, within society or in relation between society? Well, I you know I think um, no, that's a different question. Uh, but uh, let me take the question with which you began. I think one could ask the question then by having immigration would we move towards a more just society? I mean, this is one. Or would it enhance justice? It's not the same question to say, if you were to say in a perfectly just society, immigration will be completely free. We agree with that. But in a not perfectly just society, there's still a question to be, to be dealt with. The fact that in a perfectly just society, even if we were to agree, we may not, but even if we were to agree, and I think typically we would not on a perfectly just society, what it would be, but supposing we were agreed in a perfectly just society, there will be no barriers to immigration. That doesn't tell you yet at all which of the alternative proposals for immigration may be the right one to do now. That is the nature of the claim that I'm trying to make. That is not a very helpful way of thinking about it, neither necessary nor sufficient, nor basically helpful subject to Barbara showing me that they may be, it may be very helpful, but we have to see still. Okay, yeah. Could you explain what this inconsistency proposition is about? Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's this, you see, the original position consists of negotiators, as it were, who are exactly those people whose life will be involved. They will be the people who would be born and live. Okay? Now, consider first the population policy. You're determining how many people would be born. Well, quite clearly, there's a variable number you're considering here that may come out. Otherwise, it's not a population problem discussion. Now, supposing you decide that n people, or let's take concrete numbers, the 100 people will be born. Who decided that? Well, those 100 people would have to decide that. If there were 120 people, then some of the people who take part in the discussion are not in fact born. And it isn't quite clear who were these human beings who were not born but who took part in the discussion as to whether 100 or 120 will be born. Alternatively, you might go in the other direction, not type 1 but type 2, that you know, those who would be invariably born, say 60 of them, take part in the decision. Then you end up with 100, 120. There is no non-existent people who are involved. But then there are some people who are existent, the difference between 100 and 60, who did not take part in the discussion in the original position, who end up being born and whose lives are affected. Now, since add to this the complication, and for that the best discussion I think still is there at Parfit, that any, uh, you know, first of all, there's an issue of composition. Who will be born? you know, depends on uh, what exact combination of sperms and ovum take place. And that, and this Parfitian point that any change, minutest change in behavior, would generate a different population. It kind of leads to kind of wonder that we managed to get born at all. But it, it, that issue comes up immediately. In that most, most improbable. Yeah, it's the most improbable thing of being born. Yeah, I agree. Now, then the, 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 the Rawlsian answer to that would be, and there is an answer, uh, I don't think it's a satisfactory answer, is that 
it doesn't really matter who follows because the principle would be exactly the same no matter how many people there are and who are born and who are not born as you recognize there's no majority vote no social choice in original position there's sheer unanimity now I'm arguing here to that I'm saying A. I don't think that was ever established at all uh, I know that Ken has held this position for a long time I'm now more, more persuaded on it than I was originally <laughs> now that I'm doing my own book on theory just I really don't detect an argument to indicate that that's what, what would happen everybody would agree on that in the original position at all but secondly then there, are, there are issues of justice which actually does involve number, population policy. And, and in those cases, it would actually make a difference as to what view you are taking. So I think it's very unplausible. I mean, I was just saying that there is that internal incoherence issue. But then the rest of the paper still stands, even if that had not been an incoherent issue. There are other problems, which is what I discussed. But thanks for giving me a chance to come up with that. I see that David wants to finish the meeting, I think. I think close it here and, and give our thanks to Martha. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.